Hello. Before we begin, I wanted to um, put a warning that this episode includes graphic descriptions of violence against women, sexual abuse and rape and the outcome of those. It is very graphic. We go into quite a lot of shocking detail. So I wanted to yeah, give you adequate warning for that. But the topic of a domestic abuse and all the things we cover are hugely important. And as we learn in the episode, it's something that affects a staggering one in four women in the UK. So it is really important, but didn't want to just wiggle on into this episode without giving you the opportunity to check whether it was something that you were ready to listen to. Hello and welcome to another episode of But Why, the podcast that's all about digging into big questions and tricky topics via honest conversations. This week we're going to be looking at domestic abuse with the charity Refuge and I'm going to be talking to two guests. First up, Natasha Saunders, who is an active campaigner and independent consultant for causes against domestic abuse after suffering eight years of sexual, mental, physical, economic, emotional abuse as well as coercive control. She is committed to raising awareness of the far-reaching effects of domestic abuse, both on a personal level and on a wider societal level. After that, I'll be talking to Kim Manning-Cooper, who is Refuge's Head of Media and Campaign. She has worked in human rights and social justice for more than 20 years. She is the priority campaign to communications for large NGOs, including Oxfam and Amnesty International, and worked around the world as an aid worker and advocate. Whew. So before I get going, I always like to just ask a few fun questions to get us in the zone, although we have just off mic gone straight into massive chats. But um, um, how are you really? What star sign are you? And what's your favourite crisp? Oh, at the moment, the Walker's paprika ones. Fairly classic. had some of those on the train yesterday. I hate eating crisps on the train because you're like, don't chew too loud. Yeah, it's noisy. Kind of weird. Uh, star sign, I'm uh, Sagittarius. Um, so That makes sense. That's all, that's all yeah. I need to say, really. Yeah. Maybe that's why I like paprika crisps. And how yeah. am I really? Oh, God, what a question. Um, slightly insane, slightly uh, highly strung. Mm. Um, I empathize with everything everywhere um and i prefer my animals over almost any human and i have a lot of animals do you tell me quickly what I, I, uh, i'm getting really jealous of this because i got, although i'm in yeah uh, i've got six cats four ragdolls one half ragdoll because one of my ragdolls luna pergard had a one night stand uh, my other ragdolls are Ragnar, which is her son with Dobby, and uh, Draco Meowfoy, best cat name ever, in case anybody wants a tip. Um, and then I've got three Icelandic horses who regularly stroll in my house, which you can see on my Instagram. Love to put a picture of the horse in the house. We live in a big house. What size are they then? Like... Uh, they're about, they're between about 13.3 and 14.2. So there's three of them, they're staggered between there. Um, and yeah, they like to, they, you know, Icelandic horses are because of the weight bear and their bone density are classed as horses, even though they're pony size. Um, but yeah, they come in the house and, and have a stroll around and graze the back garden. And we have to lock the conservatory because they've worked out how to let themselves in and stuff like that. So yeah, it's a madhouse. Yeah. Yeah, it really is. You, you have got a lot, you've got a lot of yeah. animals going on in there, but also amazing. 
So when you're you're saying you empathize with everything and you're mm-hmm. you're highly mm-hmm. strong, I can only imagine that is probably unfortunately or fortunately because empathy is useful links to your experience of abuse can you tell me a bit about that in particular how how even in my intro reading out all the different shapes that took so basically when I was 17 I met a guy who decided to wage war on my body and mind um before I knew it I'd changed my number I'd given up my job I'd moved 30 miles away from my parents cancelled my intensive driving course and I was isolated, you know, I was in this house. If I wanted to go out with my friends, you know, bearing in mind I'm 17 and he's 14 years older than me, it was, why don't you want to sit with me? Why don't you want to stay with me? And because I'd had quite a an erratic childhood moving around and stuff, the fact that he had, you know, a stable home he'd lived in for a number of years, a car on finance, a daughter from a previous marriage that he saw every week, it sort of felt like that was the stability that you're supposed to aim for. You know, we're sold mm-hmm. this social dream of you should settle down and be happy. And there's your picket fence and your Labrador, you know. Mm-hmm. And um, no offence to anybody that's got a Labrador, obviously. But it's very much a whole, it's what you're supposed to aspire to as a female. And so I went along with it. And I knew for a long time that it wasn't normal. Um he was taking photos of me he was threatening to share them with my parents um he was taking naked photos of me and sharing them with women online trying to get them to have threesomes with us he had me phone a prostitute at one point um and then I fell pregnant on the pill and I remember vividly being eight weeks pregnant in the bath hands on my stomach going we could do this on our own and yet it still took me until she was almost six to be able to leave Mm -hmm. um during my pregnancy, he was a long distance courier. Um, he starved me, wouldn't let me drink water. Um, I remember that I um, I was lactose intolerant. And when we used to drive to, say, Glasgow, he would buy himself a cheeseburger and a milkshake from McDonald's, knowing I couldn't eat anything um, and things like that. Amazingly, my daughter was born healthy, but... The day that I went in, I got up and hemorrhaged everywhere. And I phoned him and he was like, well, no, because you need to sort yourself out, clean up before we're going anywhere. And you need to wait till I get back. You're not going in an ambulance. So we got to the hospital. I got put on a drip. They forgot to give me an epidural. So I was on a drip induction, no epidural, no pain relief. Um, you know, I'm, I'm just turned 20. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm like, I didn't even ever want children. What the hell is going on? Mm-hmm. Um as she was about to be born, her heartbeat dipped. So obviously the room filled with people. Um, they lost her heartbeat. So I was given a cut. Uh, she was Vonthoos delivery, came out with a little hoover circle on her head, mm. you know. Um, and the second she was out, she cried. And they put her in my arms. And I remember all those sort of like, oh, my God, what am I going to do with the baby? I looked at her and I was like, holy shit, I made this. And I remember looking down at her and I was just crying as they do. And his first words were, don't just look at it, shut it up. Well, don't just stare at it, shut it up. And then he walked out the room. And there was a massive fail by medical professionals because nobody knew where to look. And then the older midwife sort of rubbed my arm and went, I think he had tears in his eyes, pop it. And I'm like, no, he fucking didn't. <laughs> don't lie. I'm like, no, he didn't. So, you know, so I went home the following day um, and... He immediately had all the neighbours over. Oh, my goodness, this is fantastic. You know, look, it's a baby. But behind the scenes, he didn't hold her, feed her, change her, do anything for her. Um, 
fast forward a couple of years and we were doing Hermes career work because he frequently quit jobs so he could, in his words, keep an eye on me. Mm. Um, and he would strap our daughter into her car seat for like five, six hours a day. And we would argue about it and we would, you know, and because uh, I had to sit in the car with him, you know, I had to go everywhere with him. And then I fell pregnant with my son. Now, I don't think I've ever been in such a dark place in my whole life. And I remember standing at the top of the stairs thinking I could throw myself top to bottom. Mm. And then I realized that if I did, there was nobody to look after my daughter. Mm. So when I went into hospital to have Thomas, I, um, I had to have him alone because he wouldn't let anyone look after his daughter. And when he asked his mum, she said no. So he brought her along whilst I'm in labour to the hospital after accusing me of doing it on purpose during rush hour. My contractions were 50 seconds apart and the hospital was 40 minutes away. So mm. I was kind of like, we need to get a move on, you know. Um, bearing in mind that day I'd done shopping, I'd done a horse, I'd done a sponsored walk with my daughter and all the parcels. I, I was like, oh my God, now I get to have a baby. Awesome. Um, had my son, absolutely no trouble whatsoever. It was fantastic. And then I texted him and said, here's your son. And he said, great, you're coming home. I was like, but it's 10 o'clock at night. Mm. He was like, you're coming home. Who'll do the parcels tomorrow? And so he came and he got me and we went home. And the three-year-old at the time, Darcy, was hysterical, obviously. New baby. She's been made to get mm. up in the middle of the night. You know, it's all unsettled. She never had a night away from me. And um, he, we put her to bed and he screamed at her that we loved the new baby more than her already. So I managed to settle her, settle the baby, got into bed, and then he decided it was a good time to rape me and rip what, my stitches. You've just come out of the day just you've come had out of a hospital. Baby. Yeah, I've had um, a cut. I had a baby four hours beforehand, maybe five hours beforehand, and he decided that he would have sex with me. And I remember being in the bathroom because we had a bathroom and a separate toilet sort of thing. And I remember being in that tiny room, clutching the wall, thinking, oh, my God, what do I do? It was mm. like somebody was pouring blood out of me. And I was like, what the hell am I going to do? I couldn't tell anyone. I've had people online turn around and go, well, doesn't sound very believable to me. And I'm like, I'm not talking about abdominal stitches. I couldn't tell anyone. How on earth would I be like to a midwife? Yeah, sorry, I tripped and ripped all my stitches. Um, and I just ignored it. I couldn't sit down for like three weeks. In the end, somebody we knew literally dropped off a rubber ring. She was like, you know, it's not normal. You can't sit down yet, don't you? Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was just one of those things. And then the next morning, he expected me up at six o'clock to feed the baby, do the parcels and the manifests on the computer whilst he stayed in bed. Um, and that pretty much defines what our relationship was like. Yeah. So, you know, and that continued all the way until 2015. And one day enough was enough. Um, and I mean, of course, because earlier on when you were saying, I was like, oh, did, when did you begin to realise that it was abusive? But I mean, by this point. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean. Yeah. But you rationalise it. What happens is, is you go into... You go into that fight or flight mode and to survive, you normalize it. And when you normalize it, you almost have to accept it. And so then when you're told, you know, 
um, it's all you, nobody wants a single mother, you're crazy, you're... By the end, I was writing in my phone, when he'd go, go and get me a drink, I would write what it was as I walked out the room, because I knew when I come back, I'd be like, here's your coffee, and he'd be like, I asked for a Coke. And I'd be like, and I'd go and get a Coke, and he'd be like, I asked for a water. Mm. You're mental. Um, And, you know, it just, yeah, it was absolutely horrendous. It, I knew it was abusive, mm-hmm. but I also wouldn't voice it to myself the day I mm-hmm. went to the police so I phoned refuges national domestic abuse helpline mm-hmm. and the woman I spoke to saved my life she she told me that it did matter that I was I was walking the earth and it did that I could be a good mum on my own and that I could mm-hmm. you know and so I went to the police station the next day with the only intention of getting a non-molestation order and the officer just said to me you know what you know I'd run for my life across Horsham Park by that point and um he just said, is there anything else you want to tell me? And it all just came out. Mm. Uh, you know, it's, yeah. Um, by which point, how old, were, I'm trying to get the time frame, how old are your kids at this point? So the day I left, my daughter was five and my son was two. My daughter was just a couple of months shy of six and my son was two and a half, but yeah. Mm. yeah. And then what what happened next from the point that you t- did tell the So... Police? He stood up and said, I've got to get a sexual offences officer. Um, Then the tensest hour of my life, which was when my ex managed to get my kids from school and disappeared with them and the police couldn't find him. Um, They eventually found him walking down the road with the kids and managed to take him and drop them off somewhere. Um, And he was arrested. Uh, I got taken to the hospital and felt like I was on a mortuary slab with lights and and latex gloves and photos being taken of me and um and I remember the humanity of that moment because I remember that somebody gave me like a, a tray of biscuits and we're like there mm. we go and I sat there and was just like and my phone had died and I was sat there literally staring at my phone and the lady said to me a lady came in and she said what phone have you got and I said and on her lunch hour she went and got me a charging cable from her house and I will never forget the humanity of that, that, that yeah. letting me still have a connection. And when we were going home that night, we're in the car. So I'm with my mom and her partner and I'm literally just like, and the kids obviously think this is some grand, great adventure. Mm-hmm. And my daughter says, are we going to go to the car and get our things out? So sweetheart, the car was repossessed six months ago. We don't have it anymore. She went, no, the car daddy parked across the road. And it had turned out that he had stolen a courtesy car from work, not parked it on our driveway, but parked it in between other cars up a side road from our house. And in the car was my son's changing bag, passports, laptop, camera, anything of value, anything he thought of value, even handbags of mine that he thought were valuable. Mm-hmm. And to this day, I'm convinced that he was going to follow through on some people have gone, well, he had their passports. And I'm like, yeah, but that's just the sort of thing he would do. He promised me if I ever left him again, because I left in 2014 and went back, if I ever left him again, he would drive the kids into a central reservation of a motorway, into a lake, off of a cliff in Brighton or whatever, and he would make me live with the consequences of knowing that my kids were dead because of because of my own actions. And that's what he had over me. Um, and then from there, the police investigation took three years. So in that time, I went into a woman's refuge and I was told it would take me nine and a half months to get housed. And I was like, no, 
So I went down to the the local housing office and I was like, right, I have been through horrific trauma. How Mm. dare you expect me to to stay in limbo? How are we supposed to heal as a family Mm. in a house where last night the police were storming it because one of the girls had a knife because I was in the critical house because there was nowhere else for us. Mm. And in the end, we, we were put on the active housing list and we actually all got housed. I helped the girls in there and we all got housed within about a month, whether it was temporary housing or permanent. Um, I moved into my flat on the 5th of March, I think it was, uh, 5th or 6th of March uh, 2015. Couldn't afford to put carpets down. I went to Argos and bought the cheapest clearance things that they had. And I remember the first night my kids went to sleep sitting there going, this is what freedom feels like. Yeah, we're safe. Um, Then I met my partner online um, and we were together about five weeks and I had a, a minor stroke and I lost the use of my right side. Um, still got a morphine patch on now. Um, and I remember he had to go home because he lived in Western Supermare and I was in Portsmouth. And I remember he had to go home because he worked and and thinking, and he was like, I've just got a nip outside him in it. And I thought, this guy's not coming back. Like, And who can blame him? You know, like, not only have I got two damaged kids, a house with nothing in, you know, a rape case hanging over me and an ex who's stalking me online and breaching his bail constantly and the police aren't acting on it. Now I've had a stroke. Oh, my God. And I remember he came back in, they put food in front of me. And at that point, I was four stone lighter. I was a size four where clothes fell down on me. And uh, they'd put a cannula in my left hand and I'm left handed, which meant I couldn't move my hand because the cannula was all pushing up through my skin. And my right hand was useless because I couldn't feel it. And they'd just plonk to plate the food in front of me. And I remember he came back in and he drew the curtain and he fed me. He sat down and he fed me. And he was like, I've taken two weeks leave and I'll take however much more if we need to. And we'd been together only three months when we moved up to Nottingham and everybody was like, whoa, this is insane. You're doing this again. And I was like, right, he's just left somebody who was narcissistic and abusive to him. You know, she used to say horrific things to him and think because she was a woman, that was okay, which it's not. And then in turn, I had my ex stalking me, harassing me, trying to find out where I was living, reporting me for child abuse, you know. And we moved to Nottingham and we never looked back. And in the time it took us to go to court for the rape charges against my ex, we had um, a stalker in Scotland when I was five months pregnant with our child together, threatening to pour boiling water over me and kick my baby out of me. That was all because my ex was giving her information on me, private letters, videos, pictures, threatening to put them online. He never got held accountable for that she did she got dragged to court and in my opinion she was a vulnerable person who was taken Mm. advantage of as well and that just shows the strength of his manipulation because he Mm. manipulated her from 450 miles away so the reality of that is a lot of people go you must hate her and I'm like not at all Mm. I feel awful for her because she's got a criminal record now Mm. you know um, at the time don't get me wrong I had absolutely no sympathy for her but being an adult and looking back on it you know um we got married which is a a huge positive um we've been married five years this year um we yeah we had a child together uh we got dragged in and out of family court by my ex um every time we were there he'd shout that he had evidence I was being investigated by the police um he had evidence that I'd lied the prosecutor the prosecuting barrister had turned against me honestly 
lie after lie after lie. And obviously he never get held, got held in contempt of court, you know, or lying. Mm. Um, and he still harassed me online constantly. So I gave evidence on International Women's Day uh, four years ago. And I was cross-examined for five and a half hours. When it got to the end of the cross-examination, obviously normally uh, prosecution then do a redress to sort of tie up any sort of holes that have appeared. And the prosecution went, no, we're good. Uh, I got accused of being naked in bed was consent. Um, I was like, oh, okay. So can we just go over how I wasn't allowed to wear clothes, like bed clothes, like pyjamas? I wasn't allowed to do that. So where does that leave us? And he sort of went, "Mm, uh, uh, mm." and then he was like, when you phone the National Domestic Abuse Helpline, you never said anything about rape. And I went, okay. And if you listen to my testimony, I've told you that until I walked into that police station, I never had any intention of reporting rape after I knew how poor the statistics were. And he sort of went, um, um. And then at one point he said to me, and if you look at X, Y, and Z, do those messages sound abusive to you? I went, yes. He went, do they sound controlling? I went, yes. He went, do they sound abusive once more for the court sort of thing? And I went, yeah, they do. Yes. And he went, then why did you send them? And I went, excuse me, if you look, you'll see that the defendant sent those messages to me. And he was like, oh, yes. Well, okay. And I was like, oh, somebody looks like a bit of a twat. (laughs) Like, um, so yeah, uh, it was it was colourful to say the least. Um, but the end result was he was found guilty. He was found guilty of three out of four charges. The fourth charge that he wasn't found guilty for was um, he was found guilty for the night my son was born until the day I left. That entire period and two individual counts of rape in the weeks before I left. The fourth count was from before my son was born, but because I couldn't give a definitive start date to when I identified the rapes beginning and I wasn't willing Mm. to lie about it, Mm. that count couldn't be found guilty, which I understand, you know. Mm. Um, So he was found guilty of three counts of rape and one of sexual assault by penetration. Um, I believe that the prosecutors put the sexual assault by penetration in there because of the, the disparity between conviction rates for rape and sexual assault being over 60% between the two of them, they put the sexual assault in there in case he was found not guilty on the rape charges. Oh, okay. Um, I think at the time, don't quote me, but I think at the time rape convictions were about 17% and sexual assault was 78 Right. So it's a big disparity. And Mm. I think it was a... During the proceeds of family court, I found out that he was a child sex offender from before I met him um and that he'd only been given 200 hours community service for um indecent assault on a child under the age of 13 uh i still don't know how old that little girl was but my daughter is 13 next week and Mm. she is still definitively a child and he would have been 26 at the time Mm. um he wasn't put on the sex offenders register because it was a month before the sex offenders register came into force and nobody around him ever told me never told me um in the course of giving evidence there was a woman who came forward who i think had lived with him for a number of years didn't know he had a wife and child and when she found out he followed her in his car punched her window through and attempted to strangle her in a car seat 
um, because of the trial, I, obviously you're not. If you don't know who a witness is, you don't. You're not allowed to know their name. But I always felt like this huge gratitude to her because the people that testified for me that knew me did it because they knew me. But to have someone knock on your door and go, hey, you know, that really traumatic event 15 years ago, I know you're married with two kids now and you've rebuilt your life, but can you come and relive it for the court? Um, And she did. And he was found guilty of 12 years in prison. He was sentenced to 12 years in prison, free on license and lifetime on the sex offenders register. Um, My husband then applied to uh, adopt the kids In the meantime, through my media work, I got a message one day from a lady who was best friends with the lady who gave evidence for me. And she said, I've seen your piece in a magazine and I wanted to say thanks. And my friend was with him and it was awful for her. And I went, I need you to get a message to her. And I thanked her. I thanked her for doing something that a lot of people would find easier not to do. And Mm. I'm really proud to say that we're friends now. And she supports me in everything. um, And... That means a hell of a lot to Mm. me. Um, In the course of the adoption, my ex pulled every trick out of the book, um, looked up every legal thing he could, tried to stall it, tried to make accusations. And in July last year, the adoption was finally granted. So my ex-husband had his rights completely removed. And my husband is now legally their dad. Um, they've got new birth certificates. My two children, my my two children from my first marriage are over the moon. You know, Darcy's mm-hmm. almost 13. I couldn't be more proud of the, the young woman she's turned into. You know, during the Sarah Everard case, she stood up in school and, and she spoke about it. And, you know, and my son, Thomas, he's had some trouble. He's a very sensitive little kid, but he's a really good kid. He's got a lot of empathy for the world that holds him back sometimes because mm. he gets so upset over things. And my son, Henry is feral. He's basically <laughs> feral. Child. like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's like uh, that little kid from the wild Thornberries, that yeah. Donny kid that they found in the bushes, you know? Yeah. Um, and last year we moved from Nottingham down here. Um, and during lockdown, I decided to really go at it with domestic abuse. And along with refuge, we managed to change the law with the naked threat campaign. And uh, we were told it would take four years. And I was like, "Mm, you changed COVID laws overnight. So don't (laughs) think so. Nine months with the help of the amazing MP for Rushcliffe, uh, Ruth Edwards, who really didn't get a lot of thanks in the the whole course of the campaign. She was amazing. Um, On the day of Royal Ascent, she thanked me in Parliament. And so did Vicky Atkins from the Home Office, which was really overwhelming to be thanked by name and and really acknowledged for it. And yeah, it's my work with refuge is so important to me because not only do I owe them my life, also I'm that voice for every woman who feels like she doesn't have one. Mm. And I'm that voice for every woman who I get messages from women going, I'm not brave enough to do what you do. And I'm like, it's not about bravery. It's not about bravery. It's about your support network and where you are in your recovery journey. And, Mm. you know, I lecture every new recruit that goes through the Metropolitan Police Force, every five weeks I go down to London and I lecture them. I tell them about lived experience, but I also tell them about how to cope with the feelings that they have as an officer when a woman won't leave. You know, the most Mm. common question is, why don't you just leave? And I'm like, Mm. okay, think about what you took to work today. I want you to put it in your pocket, but leave your bank card because I'm going to drain the account dry. And I'm also going to report your phone lost or stolen and probably the car stolen too. 
you can't go home you can't go to anywhere he knows because you're putting them in danger you don't know where your kids are sleeping tonight and if you've got any pets remember he's going to kick them around the kitchen like he always does when you do something wrong this time he might just kill one the amount of kicks in the ribs i took getting between his german shepherd and his foot it's one of those things where it's not so easy and people mm. go i'm really sorry you shouldn't ask why don't you just leave but i wish people would especially mm. to me because i'm like i can tell you why mm. and i can make you think why you know it doesn't you don't have to have suffered domestic abuse to be an ally mm. you just have to have the empathy to understand the horror of it i woke up this morning and i had somebody comment on my facebook post that he would give me a real d and it won't be rape because i'll enjoy it this time Honestly, and I had a message. I've put it on my Instagram story. And I was literally like, I'm sure your mother would be so proud of you if you weren't hiding behind a fake account. But thank you. It's just it's just this sort of attitude throughout society where, you know, because rape has been made a joke at times, I say this to the Met, you know, if you joke about it, it takes away the seriousness of it. If you're making a racist joke, it takes away the hurt of racism. If you make a homophobic comment, it takes away, you know, it makes it normal and it doesn't, you don't associate it with the hurt and toxicity that it actually is. So, yeah. Wow. Wow. Sorry, you can talk a lot. <laughs> no, it's, it's amazing. I think, you're, Clemmie, you're doing great interviewing, but you can listen to you all day. First of all, wow. I mean, you, I'm in awe of you and and everything that you've done and, and also how you've you've literally made your life, everything has fallen into place from you because of your courage in, in the face of really the most awful things. And, and you survived. I mean, you so survived. So I've got... Um... So I had my, my logo is a phoenix um, and somebody, I think I've got one here, somebody made, um, oh, drew the phoenix for me. It's even on my phone case and it says survive, rise, thrive because you yeah. survive what you're going through, you rise above it and then you're going to thrive. Yeah. And it's like my Instagram is, is filled with with pictures of my, my family life and my pets and me happy. And and you know why? It's not to rub it in the face of anyone. Mm. And and I mean, it's really important to say if you if you leave an abusive relationship, you don't have to get with another person. That doesn't that doesn't mm. fulfill you. So my husband is not my husband because I need a man. My husband could walk out on me tomorrow and it would break my heart because he's my best friend. But my God, I'd get over it. I'd pick myself up, I'd dust myself off and I'd be just fine. We're together because we are each other's biggest fan and we support each other. When we've had a shit day, one of us goes out of the way to cheer the other one up. And you know what? There is no one more in the world that I want a hug from when I've done well. He's the first person I tell. And yet he's also the first person to go, go on, go down there, get on the train, go and do that. Go show your face, go push yourself, go, you know, we're together because not because we need each other, but because mm. we support each other and we complement each other's mm. characters. Mm -hmm. But if you leave and you want to be single, that's fine. But just remember, not every person in the world is a perpetrator. And I think it's sort of when we had the Sarah Everard case and we had the police and everybody was going, we can't trust the police. I was sort of like, okay, I get what you're saying, but when Harold Chipman killed a bunch of patients, he was also in a position of trust and nobody thought twice about going to their GP because we mm. know not all GPs are killers. Mm. Um, and that's what I try and get across to, mm. to the 
the people I talk to. Mm-hmm. Um, but I show my life now because there was a time where, you know, eight years ago, I can tell you now, Clemmy, I would have woken up and watched the clock for bedtime. I would have trodden on eggshells. I would have done whatever it took to protect my kids from him because mm. they weren't allowed in the lounge. They had to watch TV on the hard chairs in the kitchen or sit on the lino. Their toys were in the kitchen. They were not allowed to to live like children. There was no lounge. There was, you know, it was Christmas. Otherwise, it was his space. And I would have done whatever it took to shield them from him and then gone to bed and just prayed that he wasn't going to rape me that night. I can't explain the change. A change can be amazing just because you can't see what that change will be. Just live your life. You know, when people go to me, I'm so sorry for what you've been through. Why? Why are you sorry? I'm not a rapist. I'm fine. Like, what happened to me is not a definition of, of who I am. You know, if somebody steals your bag... That doesn't mean you're a thief, does it? It's the other per- it's on the other person. Good people do not go around destroying other people. And mm. so victims need to be taught that they're going to be okay. It might not feel mm. like it right now. And yes, you do have to go through a lot of difficult feelings. But there is support out there. And if you're listening to this and you are in an abusive situation and you don't know what to do, phone that helpline. Go on their website. There is a live chat. They have interpreters. I know it's far more difficult for women from different ethnicities to access services, especially if they don't have, you know, legal right to reside in the UK. But the reality is that help is out there. And, you know, my end goal is to shine a light on all the shadows in which perpetrators of our society hide. So everybody sees them for who they are. Mm. So we are more aware you know, if one in four women in England and Wales will suffer abuse in their lifetime, we all know somebody suffering it. And the worst thing is, is as Kim Manning Cooper said in her speech at a gallery I was at the other night, we all know a perpetrator too. Yeah, that's that's often a really hard thing to get mm-hmm. your head around. Yeah. yeah. A colleague, a friend, I mean, yeah. relatives. Yeah, we, we, yeah, we definitely will. And that's will. really hard, doesn't it? How do you address that? How do you, you know, but I think it's one of those, you know, my perpetrator, he had abused his ex-wife. He'd abused multiple women, gave evidence in the trial that I didn't know about. Um, You know, there had been women from when he was younger, way before he had kids. I mean, his daughter, uh, I say his daughter, my daughter, as in from his first marriage, she has her mum, wonderful human. She has me. She's coming up this weekend, actually. Um, I think two Christmases ago, maybe three Christmases ago, she gave my husband a letter and she'll kill me for saying this. But in the letter, um, she put, you know, Ben, there's only 10 years between us. And um, it's taken me like three months to write this letter because I keep rewriting it. And and. Uh, yeah, there's only 10 years between us and I'm not like asking to call you dad, but please can I change my surname legally to Saunders? Um, because you are my father figure. You are the dad of my my brother and sister and she classes Henry as her brother as well. Um, and I can't think of any other surname that I'd ever want to have. And wow. so now her surname is Saunders too. So a lot of people find that a bit weird. And I go, oh, it's my extra daughter. And they're like, how old were you when you had her? <laughs> and I'm like, no, I'm like, she's got two mums. And then they're like, what? And I'm like, oh, my God, don't worry about it. But yeah, yeah, it doesn't you know, matter. 
she she comes up with her partner who's absolutely lovely um she's at winchester uni and yeah you know it's i'm not going to punish her for who her no. father is no it's not her is it so it's yeah you know and she is part of our family and she'll always be part of our family and you know what a man my husband is you know hey not only can you take these two kids on can you take the child from his first marriage on as well? Do you mind doing that? And he's just like, no, that's fine. You know, this is Shannon and 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 that's how it is. So it often gets overlooked. So I've seen a lot of people, I don't take compliments well. People go, you're amazing. And I go, I like birthday cake or something <laughs> awkward. You know, I'm like, ah, but who oh, look a boss. Um, but people forget just what my husband does behind the scenes. Yeah. You know, my husband accepts all of this stuff. He has colleagues who go, I heard your missus on the radio. Or I saw her here. I saw her there. Oh, my God. You know, and he is really, he's just so supportive of me. And he's so supportive of the things I do and women's rights. And he's my sounding board for when I have a mad idea that I'm going to do something or take something on. Or, And, you know, sometimes he does have to slow me down. Sometimes he has to be like, hey, you know, like, chill a little bit. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> but yeah you know it, it, it's to do what I do you have to have you know it you know that whole it takes a village to raise a child comment you know it takes a village to to do what I do and I've between refuge and their press team like Kim she's an absolutely amazing human she's from Portsmouth too she actually <laughs> went to the same school as me years apart no way really so the first time we spoke she's like are you from Pompey? I was like, yeah. She was like, what school did you go to? And I said, she went, no way. So we've got like a bonded thing there, yeah. you know, deep. Yeah. Uh, we both survived that school. Um, but yeah, you know, I, I'm surrounded by by love and support and happiness. And it can happen for anybody who suffered abuse. You just have to remember that you're not, you're not damaged. You're yeah. not, there is I nothing that- wrong with you. And it's not. I mean, you don't. You, you want to avoid the cliches of happily ever after, but it, but it, but it does so clearly demonstrate it was never about you. It was never absolutely, a absolutely. And it, there's that thing of I think somebody went to me once. Oh, you've got a happy ending. I said it's not a happy ending. It's no. a happy ever after. And I said, you know, when I changed the law, um, the the head of the refuge board of directors, absolutely lovely lady, sent me an email and she said, you know, changing the law is a once in a lifetime achievement and well done. And I remember sort of going to myself uh I mean at the time I was 32 and I was like I'm 32 I'm just getting started yeah this is the you know I've got people going are you going to run to be an MP are you going to do this are you going to do that you know and and who knows but the point is is that whether you want to get out of that relationship and do what the sort of thing I do or whether you just want to put it behind you and live your life Mm. do it because you can be happy and you deserve to be Mm. you deserve to be happy so to kind of conclude a couple of things if if someone is listening uh, who feels either they are in an abusive relationship or a close friend of theirs, what is the the next step? It is to get in touch with an organisation like Refuge. Yeah. So there are so many organisations out there. Um, and, you know, on my website, for example, I have what I believe to be the, the world's first domestic abuse directory. So basically I realised that there was nowhere that listed all of these numbers. So I've put you know, on there, things for all genders, for people with disabilities, for people from different ethnicities in the UK, including, you know, Refuge, Women's Aid, all of that sort of thing. 
on my website, I've got the 0808 247 helpline number, which is run 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Um, but I've also got things for people in other countries because I do. I have people contact me from South America. I had a woman contact me. She said um, I went to the police to report rape and they beat and raped me too. What do I, you know, and all I can do, all I can do for her is, is be there for her. So we mm. chat on WhatsApp. We chat on WhatsApp and that's all I can do. But, you know, it occurred to me that there are, I, I get notifications from all over the world of people hitting my website. And I was like, what if they're looking for help and refuge? Obviously being abroad can't help, you know. Mm. So I've put all that together because if just a couple of people visit those pages yeah. and they remember that, then I've done it. You know, mm. I've had women contact me and tell me that I saved their life. And that's a really profound thing. Unreal. hugely hugely profound thing um so yeah you know i think it's it's one of those things where um it's like vibrating then it's unusual <laughs> that's why somebody bringing me i'm like go away nobody brings me um <laughs> but yeah it's um yeah reach out to those organizations on the refuge website they've got some really helpful information about what to do if you or somebody you know is being abused um they've got that live chat if like me their partner was home all the time or not working or it's really really hard to be able to phone somebody mm. so you know maybe maybe doing it via chat is easier um you know you can arrange a call back at a time that you need um you know i'd love to be put in a room with that lady with the lady who who answered my call because mm. I'd like to show her pictures of my kids and I'd like to show her a picture of my wedding day and I'd like to go, yeah. do you know what? I wouldn't have any of that without you. I don't get emotional talking about anything. But when I talk about that lady and the idea of yeah. meeting her, I'm always like, okay, I'm all right, I'm good. You know, because she she probably doesn't even realise. Can you track her down? Can't, can't I don't you... know. I don't know. I've thought about it before and I've had and quite a few ready. people say it, but I don't know if it's like confidential or... Mm. You know, but um, or if she even still works for refuge, who knows? No. It was seven years ago now, but um, yeah, you know, it's just a really, it's a really profound feeling to be able to know that somebody who was just doing their job, you know, it just goes to show we can just be doing our job and we can change yeah. someone's life. Which is also exactly what you're doing. You know, yeah, now. I'm trying my best. I can't teach my kids to change the world if I don't show them how to. No, I mean, I, I, I would want to compliment you again, but you find that awful. So I'm not. <laughs> but... I'm used to it, but just don't expect me to be like, thank you. I was taught somebody actually spent like half an hour going, when I compliment you, say thank you. And they were like, you're great. And I was like, thank you. you know, <laughs> I can do it. I am capable. Um... <laughs> Yeah, you are great, and the work the work that you're doing is great. And you, yeah, it, I just am always in awe of the human capacity for survival. It's yeah, it's unbelievable, absolutely. isn't it? it yeah. And you know, if we'd have told you in those darkest hours the life you're living now, maybe you wouldn't have believed it, but maybe you would because that spirit was in you all the way through. Absolutely, you... it never leaves you. It no. just gets downtrodden and downtrodden. No. And one of my favorite sayings that I've coined recently is, you know, I used to be afraid of the fire. Now I am the fire. Yeah. And nobody can ever put me in darkness again because I am the light. So come Ooh. at me, throw whatever you want at me, throw, you know, you get all these trolls online, go for it, go crazy. I'm ready. I'm good. <laughs> so it's more about you than it does about me. Go crazy, honey. Make me the center of your world. Thank you very much. Yeah. 
I mean, if I've never heard such Sagittarian energy in all my life. Uh, <laughs> um, where can people find you on, on the internet? What's your site? What's your Instagram? So my website, I hate saying this because I'm always like <clears throat> bit big-headed, is natashasaunders.co.uk. Um, and my uh, Instagram is handbagsnhorses. So handbags and horses. I, I think you can probably work out why. Um, yeah. And that's my Instagram. Um, right. You'll find me on there. Well, thank you for sharing your story because it's not, you know, it's not easy to con- constantly go through the worst moments of your life. But, but it, it, I know it's how much necessary. it is necessary. It's and, necessary. And, you know, as you say, if one person listening to this goes, you know, today's the day I'm going to start to make things, yeah. make a change, then it's the hardest step you will ever take. But it's the first step to the rest of your life. Yeah, and listen to all the life that's happened to you after that, from that yeah. one moment. Yeah. You know, I'm sure there's been some horrendous moments since, but it 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 shifted everything. Yeah, yeah, and nothing was insurmountable. The day mm. I left, I remember sitting on the windowsill in my mum's house that night after everything had gone on. You know, and I hadn't planned to leave, and I'd left, and and I didn't know what was going on, and you know, and I sat there and just went. Here we go. I'm never yeah. going back. No. It was that, the that most was amazing feeling and I'll never forget it. Um, I'm going to have to go for a really long walk to t- try and digest this, but it's been absolutely unbelievable. Thank you so much for your time. True. Thank you for having me. It's been, oh. uh, it's been great. Thank you. It's very dis- um, disarming not be able to see you, Kim, but I'll just have to <laughs> see you retrospectively on a video. Do you have a gauge of how common you think domestic abuse is in the UK? Yeah, well, we know that one in four women in England and Wales will experience domestic abuse at some point in their lifetime. And two women a week are killed in England and Wales, again, by a current or former partner. So that's intimate partner violence statistics. That doesn't even take into consideration the women who die at the hands of strangers. Um, That's purely based on women who experience domestic abuse um, from an intimate partner, whether a current or former. And as I say, two women a week in England and Wales will be killed um, by a current or former partner every single week. And it's horrific. It, I mean, this is almost impossible to get your head around. It is. And I, I spoke at um, a, an art exhibition on International Women's Day um, and I said to everyone gathered there, that with these statistics, one in four and two women a week, the reality is that all of us will know somebody who is experiencing domestic abuse. We might just not know that. And maybe they might not recognise it yet as abuse. Um, But it also means that we probably know a perpetrator, which is a really difficult thing to get your head around. And I think, you know, when I talk to men about this, I say, you know, obviously we we know that it's not all men. We do think that, you know, I think all men have something to learn. And that means challenging misogyny and sexism Mm. in their peer groups and standing up and saying, no, that's wrong. Oh, I'm just trying to like absorb that idea and you can't help but like run through all your friends, all your extended family, just in your mind thinking statistically this is this is happening to one of you. And and you want to it's very easy to go. Ah uh, no, but it won't. It won't be my mate, so it won't be my family, or it. But yeah, it will be, and I think 
I mean, I'm interested to know what the the big misunderstandings around um, domestic abuse are. Yeah, well, I think 50 years ago, so the first refuge opened in Chiswick in 1971. And when that refuge opened, domestic abuse was very much thought about as being black eyes and broken bones, something that happened behind closed doors, a domestic in inverted Mm. commas. And obviously, over the last 50 years, domestic abuse has evolved. So it's not just physical abuse. It can be any number of things. Coercive control, which was made a crime in 2015, for example. Um, Economic abuse. So we work with women Mm -hmm. who um, have had many thousands of pounds worth of debt run up in their names without their consent or knowledge. Um, That's one form of economic abuse. Other forms of economic abuse can be restricting um, someone's access to cash, preventing them from working, um, preventing them from having a bank account of their own. There's also obviously sexual abuse, and you'll have talked to Natasha about her story already today, um, and the various forms of abuse that she experienced. Um, There's also abuse via technology. So tech is being used increasingly um, as Mm. a tool um, to to perpetrate abuse. And tech abuse can be very wide ranging. It can be the sort of extreme end, um, which is spyware being used, location tracking. We've worked with women who have had spyware put in their children's toys, their children's teddy bears, when the non-resident parent is having contact with them so that they can record um listen to the conversations uh, that the 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 woman is having and i'm using the words women and men here because we know that you know the overwhelming majority of survivors of abuse are women and the overwhelming majority of perpetrators are men of course Mm -hmm. men experience domestic abuse as well Mm -hmm. and that should never be overlooked but refuge is a specialist provider for women and i'm a woman so i'm rooting this in sort of my lived experience and my reality but of course men experience abuse too um that i think that's really important to point out but you know when women have, as I say, have had mm. devices put into their toys, their children's toys, um, location tracking um, from the sort of, I say, less extreme, but obviously it's, it's, just, it's still just as traumatising, you know, the unwanted messages, the unwanted emails, you know, looking logging into people's emails, their social media profiles, abuse via social media. Um, and, you know, when you separate from a, from an abusive partner, you know, historically, you would, you know, you would divide up the pots and the pans, right? But it's like, how do you digitally, how do you digitally entangle yourself as well? And I always think for young people who overwhelmingly sort of live their lives on social media, um, who, who, you know, for them, it may, it may seem quite regular for their partner to have them on their find your iPhone or something so they can see where they are. But of course, if that relate, if that, if that partner is, a, is an abusive partner or is a perpetrator of abuse, that can be used to abuse. And perhaps, you know, older women who maybe aren't as um, tech savvy, for example, they might might find that they're abused, abused mm-hmm. by technology in other ways. So domestic abuse is really wide ranging. It's not just, um, it's not only physical abuse. Um, it, it's a number of things. And you know, coercive control, controlling behaviour. It's something we see really, really regularly. In last year, Refuge um, was Mm. successful in changing the law to make threatening to share intimate images a crime. 
So in 2015, I think it was so-called revenge porn. We we call it intimate image abuse, but the more kind of commonly known term is revenge porn. Mm was made a crime and women were coming into our services and saying my abusive partner is threatening to share images of me um and of course you know it's perfectly purpose I hate the word normal but it's regular for people to share intimate images right when you're in a loving relationship but then those perpetrators were threatening to share those images um and women would be going to the police and saying these threats are being made to harass control and intimidate me and the police couldn't do anything because it wasn't a crime. So mm-hmm. we identified that as being um, something that was a real kind of solution, durable solution for survivors. And we set about changing the law. Um, and Zara McDermott, who you probably know um, from Love Island, she fronted up that campaign. Um, I always hate referring to her as from Love Island because she's done so much more, you know, the BBC documentaries and everything yeah. she's done for refuge. But that's how she's sort of most well known but Zara fronted up that campaign for us and within less than a year we changed the law um, and made threatening to share intimate images a crime in the Domestic Abuse Act which was a massive step forward really rooted in the needs and wants of survivors Mm. and made a tangible difference will make going forward a tangible real difference to millions of women across, Mm. across the country. Actually as I'm listening to you I think there's a really important thing there and actually leads on to a bigger question but the idea of the threat of something is still abusive as opposed to always when, well, I think it's easy to always think of domestic abuse in the extreme ways, but abusive behaviour starts long before that. And I think I can only imagine if we can make people be aware of red flags before that they scale to the extremes, that would be a great achievement, wouldn't it? Absolutely. And I always find it really difficult to sort of, outline what red flags would be I know what my red flags are for example um you know yeah and and I think Natasha will have will have really spoken to this point but I always think I always say to women if if you if you change if you feel that you have to change your behavior around your partner then that you may be experiencing abuse you know if you're scared of your partner if you're walking on eggshells all of those Mm -hmm. things and we run, Refuge runs a National Domestic Abuse Helpline. And if I may, I'll just share that number. It's 0808 2247. Yes, yeah, please do. So I'll say it again, 0808 2247. That is 24 hours a day, seven days a week, 365 days a year. It's confidential. It's free phone. It's staffed by expert staff and volunteers. They're all women. Lot of huge training goes into to, to becoming a helpline worker. Um, and for many women, when they call the, the helpline, it's the first time that they've been believed or been able to vocalise what they're experiencing. And Natasha always says to me that calling the domestic, the National Domestic Abuse Helpline and going into refuge accommodation saved her life. Um, and I, I, she says that sincerely, mm. authentically and you know, with with conviction, yeah. that is that's the reality for her. Is that 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 the helpline mm. saved her life? Um, and refuge does life changing and life saving work every single day. Um, and we support many thousands of women and chil- uh, women and their children every day. And you know, for a lot of people, it it can be quite 
daunting, I guess, to phone the helpline. But I think we try in all of our communications to kind of, you know, we've, we've made a short video, for example, which sort of explains what happens when you call the helpline. And, you know, you don't call the helpline. There, there are lots of reasons that people call the helpline. Um, nobody mm. on the helpline will ever tell you what to do. They don't give advice in inverted commas. They give guidance. Um, and they make you aware of all of your options and whatever those options might be. And, you know, women call the helpline um, and men call the helpline at many different stages in their journey and their kind of recovery. You know, it's not just that you call the helpline if you're ready to flee and you want to get into a refuge. Um, you can call the helpline for guidance on sort of legal matters, whether that's, you know, child contact, housing issues, um, you might actually just want to chat to someone and talk about what you're experiencing and actually have your experiences validated and to feel as though, you know, to feel as though you're believed because abusers, you know, use sort of a lot of tactics to um, sort of deny women's experiences. Um, you know, they may say no one will believe you or, you know, someone may be powerful and say, you know, or have wealth and status and say, well, you know, no one's going to believe you over me. Um, you know, they try and isolate um, women from their support networks, from their family and friends. Um, you know, denying, for example, women access to cash can make it very difficult for them to flee if they're also economically abused. Um, so, you know, calling the helpline is really a first step. Um, and I would just say to anyone listening that mm. recognises any of the things that you've heard from me or Natasha, um, you know, or from you or from you, Clemmie, is, is to get in touch with the, with the helpline and, and talk to someone and refuge mm. will believe you and we will support you and we will help you um, to get the, the we'll support you to get the help that you need. Yeah, I think I was trying to, as you were speaking, trying to think like what would be the barrier and there's loads of barriers, but that idea of not being believed. And also, I, again, I haven't been in this situation, but sometimes when we're in the worst points in life, you almost go into survival and you don't want to admit to yourself, first of all, where you're at. But yeah. as Natasha said so clearly, that that exact moment was the moment when everything changed. It wasn't to say that the next chapter was a walk in the park, but it's a, it's a step towards something else, isn't it? Absolutely, yeah. And it's it's taking that first step and it's being presented with your options so that you know what they are. And you may not be ready to flee. You may not be ready to leave. You may not want to leave, you know. And, and there are community, refuge officers can offer, refuge offers community-based services you know for people within the community um, that don't want to leave we offer culturally specific services um, for, for women that have you know different cultural needs um, we offer we have a, an eastern european for example specialist service um, and then there are also organizations that work specifically um, with you know as as refuge does but specifically let's say with migrant women with no recourse to public funds and for me, that's such a big issue that just isn't talked about enough. You know, women who have may have insecure immigration status who are too scared to seek support because their perpetrators may tell them that if they seek support, they'll be deported. And women have no access. Women who have no recourse to public funds are absolutely 
mm. like shafted by the system excuse my language but I don't really know how else to put it um yeah. they're just not no. recognized and insecure immigration status should never be an, a barrier to accessing support and the government had a real opportunity with the domestic abuse act mm-hmm. to make good on you know their commitment that they that their commitment to do more for women to do better for women and girls and to better address domestic abuse but they massively missed um they massively missed out migrant women um and another way if i could just say the way that the domestic abuse bill sort of i'm going to say mm. had emissions rather than i'm not going to say it, it i'm not going to use it, any sort of negative terminology because like it was a great stride forward right this was the, the domestic abuse act years of work across the sector um to get that to a really to to a, a good place but it can only be as impactful as it is strong and robust and we would say that, you know, while there were good things in there, like threat- making threatening sharing to images a crime, it failed to support migrant women and also it failed to offer welfare reform. So at the moment, for example, welfare, so universal credit, for example, is paid by default into one account when there are two claimants in, the, in a relationship. So... That's by default, right? So if your partner is, if you if you have an abusive partner um, and that universal credit is being paid into one bank account, firstly, you may not have access to any of that money. Secondly, you may not be familiar with the, with the welfare benefit system to know how to sort of make your own claims. Um, so we, and, and, and lastly, when women flee and they then make a solo universal credit application there's usually a wait of around six weeks Mm. for that money to come in and they can be paid they're they're paid an advance sometimes by i guess it's the dwp they're paid in advance um but then of course they have to repay that advance so they're always going to be kind of playing catch up and never have the full funds that they should have. So yeah. we called for in the Domestic Abuse Act for the default to be that universal credit was paid into separate bank accounts um, and for people mm-hmm. that are fleeing abuse when they make that solo universal credit application for it to be a paid for the, the advance payment to be a grant rather than a loan so that would really enable women to start to rebuild Mm -hmm. and you 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 have to remember that many Mm. women are fleeing with some people arrive at refuges in their pajamas you know because and they've just fled with what they have they've picked their kids they've picked their kid their child out of bed and they've gone because that is the opportunity the moment that they have to flee and it can take a long time for women to flee you know oh it's um as you say it doesn't it it just turns your stomach so much doesn't it that that women people but particularly women in this case are finding themselves in this situation and but it there is something to be said that there are organizations like yours and there are lines and there are there are places you can go who will help you on this journey because it must feel unbelievably lonely in in the depth of it but but yeah I guess that is the single message isn't it to to take down that number to to find the websites and to make that first step and 
I would hate to make it sound like there's always a happily ever after, but Natasha is a great example that there yeah. that things can change, that there are ways of working towards a, a better outcome. Yeah, absolutely, Clemmie. Like, look at the work that Natasha is doing now. She's a she's a survivor ambassador for Refuge. She um, d- does training for the Met Police. I'm sure she would have talked to you about that. Um, you know, she is mm. a fierce advocate for women's rights. And yes, Natasha has had, you know, I hate to use the word happy ending because it just, you know, as you say, not all women experience that. Not all of them do. Um, and yes there are there is help available i think that's the kind of overarching message that i would want people to take away is help is available mm. you can get help um there are specialists out there who can help refuge is one of them you know we 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 are the sole provider of the national domestic abuse helpline that's the gateway to um that's the gateway to uh, access services across the country um, you know, if you're a man that's listening, of course, you can still call the National Domestic Abuse Helpline, but there are also specialist men's services. You can call Respect. There's the, men, there's the men's advice line. Um, I haven't got those numbers in front of me, but I'm sure we can, you know, you, they, they, they're easily accessible. Um, and there sure. are specialist LGBTI mm. organisations. So there's Gallup and others. Um, there are organisations that specifically support migrant women. Um but, ref, but we can signpost to the most appropriate service for whoever calls. So pick up the mm-hmm. phone, make that call and speak to someone that can help you to look at all your available options and do what is best for you and for your children. There we go. That is like yeah, the most overriding message. And and actually, I want to say thank you to Refuge for coming to me with this opportunity because... <sighs> Yeah, we didn't really get onto it, and I'm, I'm I'm conscious of time, but we do know that this is an outcome of the pandemic that um, domestic abuse has been on the rise. There has been people, as we all have, shut behind closed doors for two years, and it's been challenging for all of us. But for anyone who is finding themselves in an abusive relationship, it will have been horrendous. And yeah, I, you just feel desperately like you want to do anything you can to try and shift this. We we ran a sort of campaign early in the pandemic which said this isn't her first lockdown because you know for many women who have abusive partners they will have already they they would have been in lockdown previously because they would, may have been isolated by their abusive partners and we saw um calls and contacts to our helpline rise I think by around an average of 61% um during the first the first period of lockdown so I think that's kind of widely kind of thought of as being like April you know end of March beginning of April to end of June early July um and the other thing to say is you know the window for women to call for help is ordinarily really narrow but of course during lockdown that window became smaller still because you know your perpetrator is not going out to work, you know, wouldn't be going out doing all of those regular things that we all did pre-lockdown. And so we actually um, launched a live chat facility during lockdown. So between 3 and 10 p.m., mm-hmm. Monday to Friday, if you're not able to call or if you can't get through or if you don't feel ready to pick up the phone, you can live chat at www.nationaldahelpline.org. 
and you live chat between 3 and 10 p.m. I know often we think of live chat as being with a bot. It really is not. It's with a it's with a real person. It's with a helpline member of staff. You know, you may get them on the phone if you if you called. Uh, but but there's a, a they're a specialist, and I'm sitting here on my camera type. <laughs> Uh, pretending to type so just reiterating the point uh, just to say as well if you if you can't access live chat either you can fill out a form on the domestic abuse helpline website and request a safe time to be contacted um, and that doesn't if you if you do live chat it doesn't show up in your in your browser history either and there are quick exit buttons well that is really important to know so that that's a whole other option to add into um the ways people get in touch thank you so much kim this has been um really really useful i hope that yeah it is received by someone who needs it and and yeah does something towards helping someone thank you clemmy and thanks for giving us this opportunity to talk to people we at refuge we just want every woman in the country to know how to access support and having your platform to help us reach more women mm. is, is so wonderful. And if I just may, I'm so sorry, one more point about accessing support and in terms of mm. accessibility. Um, if, yeah. you, if you require BSL, so sign language, um, you can also access support via BSL. Um, if you look on the website, mm. it will tell you how to do yeah. that. So if you have those additional needs as well. And we obviously hope, you know, we want our, our, our websites and support services to be accessible to, to everyone that needs them. And that's that. Um, I'm struggling to actually have the words because everything in my brain wants this not to be the case that one in four women are currently suffering domestic abuse. It's It's kind of beyond the realms of comprehension but as we know ignoring these things doesn't get us anywhere and actually I'm now thinking about friends and family and whether they are finding themselves in these situations and how I can go to go about helping them but also hoping as I said at the end of the conversation with Kim that someone somewhere is hearing this and it helps them make the steps towards to get towards getting the help that they deserve in this situation so huge thank you to Natasha for being open about such challenging times in her life and to Kim and Refuge for the work that they do this has been But Why it's um, an absolute honour to do this as part of my job and to have access to these conversations even if they aren't the kind of things I would like to hear I'm well aware of how important they are. Thank you for listening and sticking with this episode. I know it's difficult, but yeah, I'm very grateful to have you here. If you want to get in touch, you can find me on Instagram at clemmy underscore Telford, but also but why at clemmytelford.com. I'm now, I don't know what I'm going to do with myself, actually. I'd like to tell you what I'm going to do next, but I'm probably just going to sit here and try and digest some of this conversation. So that's what I'm doing next. Wishing you a very happy day and catch up with you next week. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs>